Section 17. Failure. A Student of the Drama. The Taipan. Of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 47 to 49. Chapter 47. Failure. A little man, portly, in a fantastic hat like a bushranger's, with an immense brim, a pea-jacket such as you see in Leech's pictures of the seafaring man, and very wide checked trousers of a cut fashionable heaven knows how many years ago. When he takes off his hat you see a fine head of long curly hair, and though he is approaching the sixties it is scarcely grey. His features are regular. He wears a collar several sizes too large for him, so that his whole neck, massive and statuesque, is shown. He has the look of a Roman emperor in a tragedy of the sixties, and this air of an actor of the old school is enhanced by his deep, booming voice. His stumpy frame makes it slightly absurd. You could imagine his declaiming the blank verse of Sheridan Knowles with an emphasis to rouse the pit to frenzy, and when he greets you with too large a gesture, you guess how that resonant organ would tremble when he wrung your heart, in 1860, over the death of his child. It was splendid a little later to hear him ask the Chinese servant for, Me boots, boy, me boots, a kingdom for me boots. He confessed that he should have been an actor. To be or not to be, that was the question. But me family, me family, dear boy, they would have died of the disgrace, and so I was exposed to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. In short, he came out to China as a tea-taster. But he came when the salon tea was already ousting the Chinese, and it was no longer possible for the merchant to enrich himself in a few years. But the old lavishness endured, and life was led in a grand style when the means to pay for it no longer existed. The struggle became harder. Finally came the Sino-Japanese War, and with the loss of Formosa, ruin. The tea-taster looked about for another means of livelihood. He became a wine merchant, an undertaker, an estate agent, a broker, an auctioneer. He tried every way of making money that his ardent imagination suggested, but with the diminishing prosperity of the port his efforts were bootless. Life was too much for him, and now at last he had the pitiful air of a broken man. There was even something touching in it, like the appeal of a woman who cannot believe in the loss of her beauty, and implores the compliment which reassures but no longer convinces her. And yet, notwithstanding, he had a solace. He had still a magnificent assurance. He was a failure, and he knew it, but it did not really affect him, for he was the victim of fate. No shadow of a doubt in his own capacity had ever crossed his mind. Chapter 48 A Student of the Drama He sent in a neat card of the correct shape and size, deeply bordered in black, upon which, under his name, was printed, Professor of Comparative Modern Literature. He turned out to be a young man, small, with tiny, elegant hands, with a larger nose than you see as a rule in the Chinese, and gold-rimmed spectacles. 
Though it was a warm day, he was dressed in European clothes, in a suit of heavy tweed. He seemed a trifle shy. He spoke in a high falsetto, as though his voice had never broken, and those shrill notes gave I know not what feeling of unreality to his conversation. He had studied in Geneva and in Paris, Berlin and Vienna, and he expressed himself fluently in English, French, and German. It appeared that he lectured on the drama, and he had lately written, in French, a work on the Chinese theatre. His studies abroad had left him with a surprising enthusiasm for Scribe, and this was the model he proposed for the regeneration of the Chinese drama. It was curious to hear him demand that the drama should be exciting. He was asking for the pièce bien faite, the scène à faire, the curtain, the unexpected, the dramatic. The Chinese theatre, with its elaborate symbolism, has been what we are always crying for, the theatre of ideas, and apparently it has been perishing of dullness. It is true that ideas do not grow on every gooseberry bush. They need novelty to make them appetizing, and when they are stale, they stink as badly as stale fish. But then, remembering the description on the card, I asked my friend what books, English and French, he recommended his students to read in order to familiarize themselves with the current literature of the day. He hesitated a little. I really don't know, he said at last. You see, that's not my branch. I only have to do with drama. But if you're interested, I'll ask my colleague, who lectures on European fiction, to call on you. I beg your pardon, I said. Have you read Les Avariers? he asked. I think that it is the finest play that has been produced in Europe since Scribe. Do you? I said politely. Yes, you see, our students are greatly interested in sociological questions. It is my misfortune that I am not, and so, as deftly as I could, I led the conversation to Chinese philosophy, which I was desultorily reading. I mentioned Zhuangzi. The professor's jaw fell. He lived a very long time ago, he said, perplexed. So did Aristotle, I murmured pleasantly. I have never studied the philosophers, he said, but of course we have at our university a professor of Chinese philosophy, and if you are interested in that I will ask him to come and call on you. It is useless to argue with a pedagogue, as the spirit of the ocean, somewhat portentously to my mind, remarked to the spirit of the river, and I resigned myself to discuss the drama. My professor was interested in its technique, and indeed was preparing a course of lectures on the subject, which he seemed to think both complicated and abstruse. He flattered me by asking me what were the secrets of the craft. "'I know only two, I answered. One is to have common sense, and the other is to stick to the point. Does it require no more than that to write a play? he inquired, with a shade of dismay in his tone. You want a certain knack, I allowed, but no more than to play billiards. They lecture on the technique of the drama in all the important universities of America, said he. The Americans are an extremely practical people, I answered. I believe that Harvard is instituting a chair to instruct grandmothers how to suck eggs. I do not think I quite understand you. If you can't write a play, no one can teach you, and if you can, it's as easy as falling off a log. 
Here his face expressed a lively perplexity, but I think only because he could not make up his mind whether this operation came within the province of the professor of physics or within that of the professor of applied mechanics. But if it is so easy to write a play, why do dramatists take so long about it? They didn't, you know. Lope de la Vega and Shakespeare and a hundred others wrote copiously and with ease. Some modern playwrights have been perfectly illiterate men, and have found it an almost insuperable difficulty to put two sentences together. A celebrated English dramatist once showed me a manuscript, and I saw that he had written the question, Will you have sugar in your tea? five times before he could put it in this form. A novelist would starve if he could not on the whole say what he wanted without any beating about the bush. You would not call Ibsen an illiterate man, and yet it is well known that he took two years to write a play. It is obvious that Ibsen found a prodigious difficulty in thinking of a plot. He racked his brain furiously month after month, and at last in despair used the very same that he had used before. "'What do you mean?' the professor cried, his voice rising to a shrill scream. "'I do not understand you at all.' "'Have you not noticed that Ibsen uses the same plot over and over again? A number of people are living in a closed and stuffy room, and then someone comes, from the mountains or from over the sea, and flings the window open.' Everyone gets a cold in the head, and then the curtain falls. I thought it just possible that the shadow of a smile might lighten for a moment the professor's grave face, but he knit his brows and gazed for two minutes into space. Then he rose. I will peruse the works of Henrik Ibsen once more with that point of view in mind, he said. I did not omit before he left to put him the question which one earnest student of the drama always puts another when peradventure they meet. I asked him, namely, what he thought was the future of the theatre. I had an idea that he said, oh, hell, but on reflection I believe his exclamation must have been, oh, ciel. He sighed, he shook his head, he threw up his elegant hands, he looked the picture of dejection. It was certainly a comfort to find that all thoughtful people considered the drama's state in China no less desperate than all thoughtful people consider it in England. Chapter 49. The Taipan No one knew better than he that he was an important person. He was number one in not the least important branch of the most important English firm in China. He had worked his way up through solid ability and he looked back with a faint smile at the callow clerk who had come out to China thirty years before. When he remembered the modest home that he had come from, a little red house in a long row of little red houses in barns, a suburb which, aiming desperately at the genteel, achieves only a sordid melancholy, and compared it with the magnificent stone mansion, with its wide verandas and spacious rooms, which was at once the office of the company and his own residence, he chuckled with satisfaction. He had come a long way since then. He thought of the high tea to which he sat down when he came home from school. He was at St. Paul's. With his father and mother and his two sisters and a slice of cold meat, a great deal of bread and butter and plenty of milk in his tea, everybody helping himself, and then he thought of the state 
in which he now ate his evening meal. He always dressed, and whether he was alone or not, he expected the three boys to wait at table. His number one boy knew exactly what he liked, and he never had to bother himself with the details of housekeeping, but he always had a set dinner with soup and fish, entree, roast, sweet and savoury, so that if he wanted to ask anyone in at the last moment, he could. He liked his food, and he did not see why, when he was alone, he should have less good a dinner than when he had a guest. He had indeed gone far. That was why he did not care to go home now. He had not been to England for ten years, and he took his leave in Japan or Vancouver, where he was sure of meeting old friends from the China coast. He knew no one at home. His sisters had married in their own station. Their husbands were clerks, and their sons were clerks. There was nothing between him and them. They bored him. He satisfied the claims of a relationship by sending them every Christmas a piece of fine silk, some elaborate embroidery, or a case of tea. He was not a mean man, and as long as his mother lived he made her an allowance. But when the time came for him to retire, he had no intention of going back to England. He had seen too many men do that, and he knew how often it was a failure. He meant to take a house near the race-course in Shanghai. What with bridge and his ponies and golf, he expected to get through the rest of his life very comfortably. But he had a good many years before he need think of retiring. In another five or six, Higgins would be going home, and then he would take charge of the head office in Shanghai. Meanwhile, he was very happy where he was. He could save money, which you couldn't do in Shanghai, and have a good time into the bargain. This place had another advantage over Shanghai. He was the most prominent man in the community, and what he said went. Even the consul took care to keep on the right side of him. Once the consul and he had been at loggerheads, and it was not he who had gone to the wall. The taipan thrust out his jaw pugnaciously as he thought of the incident. But he smiled, for he felt in an excellent humor. He was walking back to his office from a capital luncheon at the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. They did you very well there. The food was first-rate, and there was plenty of liquor. He had started with a couple of cocktails, then he had some excellent sauternes, and he had finished up with two glasses of port and some fine old brandy. He felt good, and when he left he did a thing that was rare with him. He walked. His bearers with his chair kept a few paces behind him, in case he felt inclined to slip into it, but he enjoyed stretching his legs. He did not get enough exercise these days. Now that he was too heavy to ride, it was difficult to get exercise. But if he was too heavy to ride, he could still keep ponies, and as he strolled along in the balmy air, he thought of that spring meeting. He had a couple of griffins that he had hopes of, and one of the lads in his office had turned out a fine jockey. He must see they didn't sneak him away. Old Higgins in Shanghai would give a pot of money to get him over there, and he ought to pull off two or three races. He flattered himself that he had the finest stable in the city. He pouted his broad chest like a pigeon. It was a beautiful day, and it was good to be alive. He paused as he came to the cemetery. It stood there, neat and orderly, as an evident sign of the community's opulence. He never passed the cemetery without a little glow of pride. He was pleased to be an Englishman. 
for the cemetery stood in a place, valueless when it was chosen, which with the increase of the city's affluence was now worth a great deal of money. It had suggested that the grave should be moved to another spot, and the land sold for building, but the feeling of the community was against it. It gave the Taipan a sense of satisfaction to think that their dead rested on the most valuable site on the island. It showed that there were things they cared for more than money, money be blowed. When it came to the things that mattered, this was a favorite phrase with the Taipan, well, one remembered that money wasn't everything. And now he thought he would take a stroll through. He looked at the graves. They were neatly kept and the pathways were free from weeds. There was a look of prosperity. And as he sauntered along, he read the names on the tombstones. Here were three side by side, the captain, the first mate, and the second mate of the bark Mary Baxter, who had all perished together in the typhoon of nineteen eight. He remembered it well. There was a little group of two missionaries, their wives and children, who had been massacred during the Boxer Troubles. Shocking thing that had been. Not that he took much stock in missionaries, but hang it all, one couldn't have these damned Chinese massacring them. Then he came to a cross with a name on it he knew. Good chap, Edward Mullock, but he couldn't stand his liquor, drank himself to death, poor devil, at twenty-five. The Taipan had known a lot of them do that. There were several more neat crosses with a man's name on them, and the age, twenty-five, twenty-six, or twenty-seven. It was always the same story. They had come out to China. They had never seen so much money before. They were good fellows, and they wanted to drink with the rest. They couldn't stand it, and there they were in the cemetery. You had to have a strong head and a fine constitution to drink, drink for drink, on the China coast. Of course it was very sad, but the Taipan could hardly help a smile when he thought how many of those young fellows he had drunk underground. And there was a death that had been useful, a fellow in his own firm, senior to him, and a clever chap, too. If that fellow had lived, he might not have been Taipan now. Truly the ways of fate were inscrutable. Ah, and here was little Mrs. Turner, Violet Turner. She had been a pretty little thing. He had had quite an affair with her. He had been devilish cut up when she had died. He looked at her age on the tombstone. She'd be no chicken if she were alive now. And as he thought of all those dead people, a sense of satisfaction spread through him. He had beaten them all. They were dead, and he was alive, and by George he'd scored them off. His eyes collected in one picture all those crowded graves, and he smiled scornfully. He very nearly rubbed his hands. No one ever thought I was a fool, he muttered. He had a feeling of good-natured contempt for the gibbering dead. Then, as he strolled along, he came suddenly upon two coolies digging a grave. He was astonished, for he had not heard that anyone in the community was dead. "'Who the devil's that for?' he said aloud. The coolies did not even look at him. They went on with their work, standing in the grave, deep down, and they shoveled up heavy clods of earth.' Though he had been so long in China, he knew no Chinese. In his day it was not thought necessary to learn the damned language, and he asked the coolies in English whose grave they were digging. They did not understand. They answered him in Chinese, and he cursed them for ignorant fools. 
He knew that Mrs. Broom's child was ailing, and it might have died, but he would certainly have heard of it, and besides that wasn't a child's grave, it was a man's, and a big man's too. It was uncanny. He wished he hadn't gone into the cemetery. He hurried out and stepped into his chair. His good humour had all gone, and there was an uneasy frown on his face. The moment he got back to the office, he called to his number two. "'I say, Peters, who's dead, you know?' But Peters knew nothing. The taipan was puzzled. He called one of the native clerks and sent him to the cemetery to ask the coolies. He began to sign his letters. The clerk came back and said the coolies had gone, and there was no one to ask. The taipan began to feel vaguely annoyed. He did not like things to happen of which he knew nothing. His own boy would know. His boy always knew everything, and he sent for him. But the boy had heard of no death in the community. "'I knew no one was dead,' said the taipan irritably. "'But what's the grave for?' He told the boy to go to the overseer of the cemetery and find out what the devil he had dug a grave for when no one was dead. "'Let me have a whisky and soda before you go,' he added, as the boy was leaving the room. He did not know why the sight of the grave had made him uncomfortable, but he tried to put it out of his mind. He felt better when he had drunk the whisky, and he finished his work. He went upstairs and turned over the pages of Punch. In a few minutes he would go to the club and play a rubber or two of bridge before dinner, but it would ease his mind to hear what his boy had to say, and he waited for his return. In a little while the boy came back, and he brought the overseer with him. "'What are you having a grave dug for?' he asked the overseer point-blank. "'Nobody's dead.' "'I know dig glaive,' said the man. "'What the devil do you mean by that? There were two coolies digging a grave this afternoon.' The two Chinese looked at one another. Then the boy said they had been to the cemetery together. There was no new grave there. The taipan only just stopped himself from speaking. "'But damn it all, I saw it myself,' were the words on the tip of his tongue. But he did not say them. He grew very red as he choked them down. The two Chinese looked at him with their steady eyes. For a moment his breath failed him. "'All right, get out,' he gasped. But as soon as they were gone he shouted for the boy again, and when he came, maddeningly impassive, told him to bring some whisky. He rubbed his sweating face with a handkerchief. His hand trembled when he lifted the glass to his lips. They could say what they liked, but he had seen the grave. Why, he could still hear the dull thud as the coolies threw the spadefuls of earth on the ground above them. What did it mean? He could feel his heart beating. He felt strangely ill at ease. But he pulled himself together. It was all nonsense. If there was no grave there, it must have been a hallucination. The best thing he could do was to go to the club, and if he ran across the doctor, he would ask him to give him a look over. Everyone in the club looked just the same as ever. He did not know why he should have expected them to look different. It was a comfort. These men, living for many years with one another, lives that were methodically regulated, had acquired a number of little idiosyncrasies. One of them hummed incessantly while he played bridge. Another insisted on drinking beer through a straw. And these tricks which had so often irritated the taipan now gave him a sense of security. He needed it, 
for he could not get out of his head that strange sight he had seen. He played bridge very badly, his partner was censorious, and the taipan lost his temper. He thought the men were looking at him oddly. He wondered what they saw in him that was unaccustomed. Suddenly he felt he could not bear to stay in the club any longer. As he went out he saw the doctor reading The Times in the reading-room, but he could not bring himself to speak to him. He wanted to see for himself whether that grave was really there, and stepping into his chair he told his bearers to take him to the cemetery. You couldn't have a hallucination twice, could you? And besides, he would take the overseer in with him, and if the grave was not there, he wouldn't see it, and if it was, he'd give the overseer the soundest thrashing he'd ever had. But the overseer was nowhere to be found. He had gone out and taken the keys with him. When the taipan found he could not get into the cemetery, he felt suddenly exhausted. He got back into his chair and told his bearers to take him home. He would lie down for half an hour before dinner. He was tired out. That was it. He had heard that people had hallucinations when they were tired. When his boy came in to put out his clothes for dinner, it was only by an effort of will that he got up. He had a strong inclination not to dress that evening, but resisted it. He made it a rule to dress. He had dressed every evening for twenty years, and it would never do to break his rule. But he ordered a bottle of champagne with his dinner, and that made him feel more comfortable. Afterwards he told the boy to bring him the best brandy. When he had drunk a couple of glasses of this, he felt himself again. Hallucinations be damned. He went to the billiard room and practiced a few shots. There could not be much the matter with him when his eye was so sure. When he went to bed, he sank immediately into a sound sleep. But suddenly he awoke. He had dreamed of that open grave and the coolies digging leisurely. He was sure he had seen them. It was absurd to say it was a hallucination when he had seen them with his own eyes. Then he heard the rattle of the night watchman going his rounds. It broke upon the stillness of the night so harshly that it made him jump out of his skin. And then terror seized him. He felt a horror of the winding multitudinous streets of the Chinese city, and there was something ghastly and terrible in the convoluted roofs of the temples with their devils grimacing and tortured. He loathed the smells that assaulted his nostrils. And the people! those myriads of blue-clad coolies, and the beggars in their filthy rags, and the merchants and the magistrates, sleek, smiling, and inscrutable, in their long black gowns. They seemed to press upon him with menace. He hated the country. China! Why had he ever come? He was panic-stricken now. He must get out. He would not stay another year, another month. What did he care about Shanghai? Oh, my God, he cried, if I were only safely back in England. He wanted to go home. If he had to die, he wanted to die in England. He could not bear to be buried among all these yellow men, with their slanting eyes and their grinning faces. He wanted to be buried at home, not in that grave he had seen that day. He could never rest there, never. What did it matter what people thought? Let them think what they liked. The only thing that mattered was to get away while he had the chance. He got out of bed and wrote to the head of the firm, and said that he had discovered he was dangerously ill. He must be replaced. 
He could not stay longer than was absolutely necessary. He must go home at once. They found the letter in the morning, clenched in the taipan's hand. He had slipped down between the desk and the chair. He was stone dead. End of section 17